Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you break free from self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and disempowering patterns, and break through to create the thriving, successful business you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. I interview entrepreneurs who've overcome amazing challenges to create success on their terms and experts who share insight and practical information that can help you get past your blocks and move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. The show is available on iTunes at thecouragepodcast.com, in the Google Play Store, and on my website, winnieanderson.com slash paralyzed. What you're going to hear is the audio recording of a video interview. When I started this show, it was a live interview show on the Facebook Live platform. It didn't take me long to recognize that I needed to start doing recorded interviews. One reason I made that decision is because the technology, frankly, is unreliable unless you've got top-of-the-line broadband and hardware, which I don't. So you're going to hear some points where it sounds like maybe a word or words dropped. You'll hear some delays and a little talking over each other at points. And that's because of that delay on the live stream platform that I was using. I hope you'll excuse that because there's great information in this episode. If you've ever felt that you just couldn't go on and question it would really be possible for you to grow a business using your gifts, then I think you'll find the episode inspiring and informative. It's so easy to look at someone's success and think that it came easily to them or that they have some secret that you don't. But we each face our own challenges to reach our goal, and often those challenges can be a combination of physical and emotional or mindset. Sometimes it's our mindset that leads us to physically be unable to move forward, and sometimes it's both. Listen in as my guest, Mary Ann Webster, shares how she went from a busy job as a sociologist with a growing therapy practice to paralyzed car accident victim and back to thriving business coach. Her response to the doctors who told her she'd never walk again. The one person who provided the emotional support she needed on a daily basis. What her friends, family, and even her husband told her about her focus on recovery and walking again how she built her coaching practice while she was still extremely limited in her mobility, and the lessons she learned as a result of going through what she went through. Listen in all the way to the end where I'll share your reflection exercise and action step for this episode. Hey, Mary Ann, how are you? Hi, folks. How are you doing? Hi, Winnie. I'm doing great. Right, awesome. I'm so glad that you could be with me this morning. And uh, let me just introduce you to the folks, and we'll jump in here. So author and business development expert Maryam Webster regained her mobility from years as a paraplegic and turned a 30-year psychology and marketing career, how's that for a unique combination, into a business helping women entrepreneurs. That business is Every Woman Changes, and oh, yes, we do. With a history as a transformative process innovator, Maryam is an expert in finding, neutralizing, and transforming the negative emotions that keep you small, put you down, and hold you back into the power to change the world. She mentors heart-based women on a mission to help and heal by creating compelling, profitable movements for social change using your own signature business and archetype and personal magic. So that is Mary Ann. Yay. 
So let's uh, let's dive right in here, Miriam. I know you're you're crazy busy, and so are the folks watching this today. So take us back to just before when you got injured. What was your business like at that time? Were you coaching or were you counseling? What was going on for you professionally? World's different. This was the end of the <laughs> 80s, beginning of the 90s. And I was a psychotherapist and social worker. And I was living in Cambridge, England with my first husband. And I had a job uh, going out into the county, Cambridgeshire County, and registering people as blind and partially sighted and giving them aids and help and tools. And then I had a professional psychotherapy practice on the side as well. Okay. Wow. What a business. So with your in your work helping the sight impaired, you must have been on the road quite a bit. A is lot. That- a Is lot, twenty four seven. Sometimes seen because when they had an emergency, I'm the one they. I was their social worker. I'm the one they called. Yeah, so okay. frequently it was going out at night and taking them to the hospital if something happened, or you know, to a okay. uh, an appointment of some kind. Yeah. Okay. And I know that losing one sight is. I think it's now the top-rated fear, health fear that most people mm. have. I just saw an article about that recently, and I can, I know that that has terrified me since I was a child. So what happened? You were actually in a car accident. Is that right? Right. Well, you've probably seen those roundabouts they have in England. Instead of a crossway, they have like a huge round thing with flowers in the middle, a little mound, and Cars go around it and then off onto the street they want to go on. And it rains a lot in England as well. This was in the winter. It was raining. um, It was really coming down extremely hard. And I was coming around the roundabout just about to go off. And a drunk guy on a motorcycle came up, boom, over that little flower mound and down into the back of my car. And my car was I had it was like one week before I got the council approved new Ford Fiesta and we were still in this ratty old nasty as a you know Mini Cooper the Mini Cooper car and how little tiny they are well this was a mini van it came up to here on me and it had no floor under the driver's seat just a piece of cardboard <laughs> so I was in that we had bought it from a plumber and he had left a box of heavy iron pipe wrenches in the back. When the, the guy hit me, that came up and smacked me in the middle of the back, broke my back. And the, that wasn't what was worrying me, though. What was worrying me, though, is I went over a woman on a moped, and I thought I had killed her. So it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, and I, that was my only thought. I rocketed out of the car, around to the front, see if she was okay. She was fine. And then I realized, oops, and I just... Boom, I went went down to the concrete. Yeah. Oh, geez, that is just, that's so horrifying. It's like something out of a movie as I picture that in my head. Do you have any memory of the accident itself, or is this just, you're just going on what people told you happened, which I know is how I, I tell people about my accident. I have no memory. No memory. Yeah, I have full you do. Have, uh, now, I didn't for a long time, and I've re- rebuilt uh, the recall pathways that were a lot of – I lost a lot of uh, function because my spinal cord 
was actually severed. And uh, it was not known for a long time that that's what had happened because in England we were on socialized medicine and I was on a two-year wait just for a diagnostic MRI. So that was, um, while I was waiting for that, my doctor said, you're American, go home. If you don't get surgery, you're going to be paralyzed for life. And as it turned out, by the time I did get surgery, I was paralyzed and did spend nine years in bed um, while getting my mobility back. Yeah. So let's talk about that that diagnosis and prognosis, I guess it, it would be. It, it, did they tell you that this was the best you were ever going to be? Did they hold out any hope for you to be able to walk again? No. <laughs> no. no. Uh, but- we came back, uh, and it was basically just, you know, pack everything and return. And at the same time, um, slightly after my operation, but uh, kind of in the same time period where we were figuring everything out, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and began to die, and I'm an only child. And it's interesting that her death trajectory paralleled my recovery trajectory, and it took her nine wow. years to to transition and I was going back and forth and back and forth on a walker and so on and I was encouraged by my doctors right after the operation to accept a wheelchair and they said because you're never going to walk again you need to get your head around that and just deal with it and you know what I told them best thing you can ever tell anyone your middle finger when they say something like that they have no clue what you can do Right, Winnie? Am I right? <laughs> we both know you that. are. That was my reaction. Yeah, that was my reaction when the doctors told me that after my my uh, car accident and my traumatic brain injury that this is the best you're ever going to get. So you better get used to it. And mentally, I just said, "Watch, it's not going to happen." Yeah, yeah, I couldn't let it in my head. So how did you manage to fight that battle? Because everybody around you was probably telling you, this is get used to it, accept it, right? Everybody, including my parents, including my husband, including uh, all my friends. And they were like, we just want you to, we want to help you get on. And it was from a completely positive intention. They wanted to help me get on with things. Um, But uh, I said my parents, my dad, I should say my dad, because my mother never accepted it. And without her, I wouldn't be walking today, I'm pretty sure. She called me every single day and she says, I know you're smart. I know you're brave. I know you're strong. And I know that you're a psychologist and you develop processes to help people heal. So develop one to help yourself heal. And she was my cheerleader, my constant cheerleader. And that, I think, if you've got one person in your corner, that's worth gold. That's worth the world, everything. So, yeah, I got to I gotta give my mom props. Um, that yeah, was sometimes fabulous. the only thing that I had to hold on to until I had real results to hold on to. And I just, I, but it was a current, came from a core of knowingness inside me that this is not all there is. This can't be, I won't accept it. And if I won't accept it, and I can conceive of better, what the mind can dream or conceive it, believe it can con- conceive. So the, the thing of holding it in my mind, holding it in my heart, and then just projecting that outward. Okay, universe, this is what I want you to bring. 
I'm not accepting that wheelchair. Just get the hell over it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we're, we're not giving medical advice here. We're talking about Maryam's experience, my own experience, and everybody's experience is different, but we're certainly going to encourage you to think about your own mindset at the time of diagnosis and as you work through the recovery process. Everyone is unique, and we're not going to. There's no blaming or shaming when it comes to trauma and and survival and where where you happen to be on your healing journey. So know that you know we're sending you love and support, and and just I just wanted you to hear Maryam's powerful story. So did you ever have any kind of doubt? or fear, or, or moment, that those dark moments of the soul, or were you pretty much clear and focused during the entire nine, nine years that you oh, worked to regain your... I was a pretty freedom? miserable mofo, <laughs> to, to use my ex-husband's expression. <laughs> You're a miserable mofo the entire time. Uh, I had... I had, it was more like I had moments where the sun broke through, you know, you get that one ray of sun, it's like, oh, you know, and then it's gone again. <laughs> but uh, the, I, I have to say that I had faith the whole way through that things would change. Occasionally, I didn't even have the faith. And then it would be others, notably my mom, like I said, that picked me up. But I never gave up. There were plenty of times when I wanted to give up and when I was like, I don't care anymore. I'm going to eat all the ice cream. Then it passed. Yeah. And it's, if you're in that space, I just want to say to you that it will pass. Time does really heal all wounds. And I've also got to the point where I thought I may never get out of this chair, but I am never going to stop trying you remember the actor Christopher Reed who played Superman and then was in a wheelchair? Um, that was his mindset until the very end, until he died. He was, I'm getting out of this chair. And the fact that he was in a chair, I saw an interview with him. It, it didn't bother him. He said, I'm not bothered. I know I'm here today, but this is today. And there's another tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. He- He was so inspiring. So did you have any kind of cognitive issues as well as physical issues that you were wrestling with? Were memory, processing, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Severe um, short-term memory loss on a a, you-tell-me-your-name, and I would ask you two minutes later, what's your name, that kind of thing. I lost most of... um, most of my college experience, which was right before that, I went to college and, you know, grad school, undergrad, uh, a lot of it has come back, but it's more like, instead of real memories, it's more like snapshots today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got back enough that I'm feeling comfortable with it. I think it's pretty much what most people my age have of, of their college experience. Most of my childhood is gone, and I, I had perfect recall of I have an extraordinary memory and did until that point I had a photo a photographic memory that I lost I, I no longer have a photographic memory but I'm I'm pretty good at memorization when I have to so it's it's being okay for me the coming back piece was uh, being okay with 
I'm not going to, if I can't get exactly what I had before, that's fine. Just get me close enough to cope in the world and be okay. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that. So apparently I was a genius before with a whole lot more IQ points. And now I'm still on that scale, but I've been knocked down a few points. And I'm, you know, I'm not drooling in a bed somewhere. That's all I care about. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you're you're actually more than good because you you were able to build a a thriving practice as you went through your recovery. So, can you talk a little bit about just even physically how the heck did you do that and uh, uh, what you know, what motivated you? How how were you literally able to because so many of us, you know, we hate selling. We hate. We don't. We're not crazy about marketing either. So, how were you able to cognitively get the emotional wherewithal to do it? And how did you do it from bed? So this is it's it's interesting because this was in the days just immediately pre-internet when we were still on dial-up BBSs. If anyone is that old and remembers that kind of thing. So we didn't have internet marketing in those days. I was in the bed. What would happen is in the morning, my husband would bring me a little cooler full of, and, and the, the hospital bed was in the front room, okay, where my office was moved to the front room. Basically, the front room was my bedroom, living room, uh, and office. And we kind of had a TV, in, and my poor husband had a, a couch that he could sit on. <laughs> and and uh, clients had, had the couch that they could sit on. But I, I got propped up in my chair to start the day, and I had this little cooler of food. When I was in the bed, bed phase in the first couple of years before I was really capable of seeing clients, I would fall out of bed and crawl on my elbows to wherever I was going in the house, the kitchen, the bathroom, whatever, and crawl back again. And, you know, I would reach up and open the refrigerator door and things were put on the lower level of the refrigerator. So that's, you know, that was kind of just physically how I cooked. And then when I got a little better and I could actually sit up at the desk and then the cooler would be put on the desk and I would be sat in the chair and my day would begin. And I had clients from before and then I was also attracting clients in the neighborhood. So I was doing networking from a very shut-in type of place, um, and from our spiritual group that we had, uh, that we attended. So it was okay. people I knew. You were getting referrals and working your contacts? Were you calling right. people and, and oh, yeah. saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm well enough to function and see people again? Right. Well, and at the same time, remember, I was also going back and forth to my parents in Missouri. This, I live in California. And I was going back and forth to Missouri to help care for my mom. And at that point, I was on a walker. had to wait for me to get to that point. Um, But I had clients in both states. So I was constantly, you know, doing something. So how long did it take you to get to the point where you were functioning and able to use a walker? That would have been probably um, I had my operation in 1990. And it was 92 before I was able to use the one. It was very rudimentary. It wasn't like I could go out of the house and use the walker and go to, you know, the store or whatever. That took a few more years. 
but I was able to sit up at the desk and use the walker to get to the restroom and to the kitchen and whatnot. Yeah, such an incredible, incredible story. So you mentioned process, and your mom mentioned process. So did you have any kind of rituals, or I'm sure you, you know, you, therapy becomes your whole life as you're trying to recover. What did you do that sort of might have supplemented the recovery process, whether it was the cognitive, emotional recovery, and the physical? Well, I uh, had a practice of, the spiritual practice of doing, uh, this is something I'm doing now actually, a business readings. I'll tell people about that later, but I do that using the runes, Northern European alphabet, that is actually condenses a whole lot of concepts down, even more primitive than tarot cards, kind of piece that people would use to get knowledge about things. And I did a lot of rune readings for myself on, you know, what's my next move? Where's the thing on the table that I'm missing? You know, what's the thing I'm not seeing? Where do I go next? And also I had... Uh, a background. This is when I started developing my background in energy psychology using any kind of um, like people have probably heard of tapping and you know the EFT where you tap on acupuncture points and so on. I learned this apparently. Gary Craig did a a talk to the Riverside Chamber of Commerce women golfers, and he was teaching them how to shave points off their handicap using EFT. And it was one of the very first times he ever brought it out to the public, and a friend of mine had a video of that. He was telling them on this video, yeah, use it for pain and heartache and, you know, personal problems, and I was like, I'll try anything because I can't take pain pills, and I was in this blinding agony that, you know, it's kind the kind where you hear somebody yelling and screaming and you don't realize it's yourself, so I started using these uh, energy therapy methods and also touch for health. I was running my meridians and doing acupoints all over my body. I did that um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I just cued it to when I did normally did other activities. Like every time I brushed my teeth, I would do some of this stuff. I did affirmations. I did, had a process of singing into a vacuum hose, but I put the other end on my back and just getting some vibration in there because I couldn't always get to a massage, get to or afford back in the day. <laughs> And it was just getting some movement in the tissues, and I would just yell down the pipe. You know, I would do my uh, do scales and whatnot and sing runes and other things. And um, so that was every time I, I ate, I keyed that too. And certainly in the morning, I have morning meditations that I've always done, and that and, and to end my day. So that it pretty much bracketed my day and had a whole lot of times in between. And I got to say that that set me up for a lifetime practice of uh, mindfulness, if you will, that has stood me in good stead until today. I don't still do all of that, but I have uh, my pieces that I do do, and I've kept up, and I can highly recommend that. Yeah. Okay. So an abbreviated level of, of the therapy that you created for yourself. Yes. And how long, Miriam, did it take you to build up your practice to the point where you were really, you know, making a, a fully sustainable living at that point? Well, um, oh, and I forgot to say something about that. I also had physical therapy to add to that, all right. the other stuff. And I was doing that eight right. to ten times a day. 
but that was me yeah. wanting to get back so bad that I was just kind of overkilling it. And so when I was in that overkill piece, that was the first couple of years that I was talking about before I became mobile enough to use a walker. I didn't have room for uh, therapy practice. And I had to tell all my clients that I ha- had had before the operation um, I'm taking a couple of years off. If you want to be notified when I'm back, you know, put your phone number on this, this sheet. I sent around a sheet at a couple of the uh, classes that I did. And so I reactivated all of those former clients at that point in time and got them. They, there were probably three-quarters of them wanted to come back, which was nice. Great. And yeah, I got them great. coming back in. And it was probably a good six years, six to seven years because I was building very, very slowly. It was not a, an immediate thing, and I didn't have a full practice before I went in the bed because I was, it was progressively becoming more and more debilitated. So it, I, didn't, I also had my mom was dying, and I had way enough on my plate, so I didn't push it. And I think that's really important is we give ourselves some room. I'm a, I was a perfectionist big time back in the day, and I was constantly guilt tripping on myself about not having a full practice. Oh my God, you know, my colleagues, look at my colleagues, they're doing all this kind of stuff. So I think you've got to be very soft on yourself and very permissive and forgiving, allowing. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. Did, did you ever ask why, Maryam? Did you ever get really frustrated or pissed off with the Almighty and, and, <laughs> Just ask yourself, why did this happen to me? In the beginning, I, I remember being too dazed for a very long time to think in that way. But when the rehab started, and it was really tough, and it was hard, and I would just like, you know, be just crying for days. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think all of us do when we get in it, when we have that happen to us. It's it's not you. You think what did I do wrong? Is uh, when I am working with a client on something like that. And I used to do a lot of disabilities coaching. I don't anymore. But when when somebody's in that in that trough, you cannot help but think, what did I do to deserve this? That's the one sentence that I would hear consistently. And sometimes you didn't do anything to deserve it. It just happened. And what if it's not your fault? I ask what if questions. I think those are really profitable instead of why is what if. So what if this is not your fault? What if this just happened? What if this is the greatest gift you could possibly ever be given? That's what I'm taking away from my my particular issue is this is the greatest gift I was ever given. It has caused so much more amazingness in my life. I can't even begin to think of myself still working as a therapist and doing what I was doing back in, you know, that early time period. I just, I can't even, wow, no. And the, the richness yeah. it brought to me because I learned how to dig my way out of it is basically what's powering my business today and what I've become known for. That's, that's fantastic. I, I agree. I think there are, there's a, a quote that I can't remember exactly, but it was something like, we either play a starring role in the movie of someone's life, or we're a featured player, or we're an extra. So whether it was some, some part of, of that person's 
destiny or or mission that they had to come into contact with you yeah i i one of the things that sustained me in my accident which of course was nowhere near as, as bad as yours was just focusing on i know there's a lesson here for me yeah and I, I just need to identify it i know there's something that it's my job to make this a positive as you say how could i what if this was a gift and what if there was a bigger lesson that i was missing and what could it possibly be that helped sustain me because I had plenty of those same moments that you did. I ate a lot of Oreos and cried a lot of tears. <laughs> yeah, mine was haagen <laughs> I have to say that when I look back, I did a, a meditation where I looked back as the angel, as my own guardian angel, and stepped into that and looked back and was like, wow, if I'm speaking to myself the second before this accident happened, I'm thinking, I'm saying, there is a whole tribe of people out there that need you bad. And you're not even the person you need to become yet. You're like not that much the person you need to become to lead them out of the darkness that they're in. This is going to suck, okay, but it's got to (laughs) happen. So that's what I had this. I was gifted with this uh, dream, if you will, that I was my own guardian angel looking back, and that's what I had said to myself. And I'm like, yeah, and I accepted that in the moment. I just, I was looking at the whole spiritual components that went into it, not I know that my soul accepted that in the moment and went, okay, so be it. Let's get on with it. And uh, I just can't tell you how blessed I feel with this whole thing happening to me. And, you know, when I speak to, um, I speak a lot to a lot of stroke survivors and they're all of the, that's the same thing that they all say is I can't tell you how blessed I feel. So it's, it's a blessing in disguise when it happens, but it is a blessing. And it might take you a little while to realize that. So, you know, we, I don't think either one of us woke up in the hospital and went, glory, hallelujah, what a present yes. I've been given. <laughs> it, it takes a while, right? We wish yeah. it takes a while, sometimes a long while mm. to work through all of those issues. But I think that whether you end up seeing whatever obstacle you're facing or faced as a gift or at least you've neutralized it Mm -hmm. and i know that those of us who are adult survivors of child abuse it can be really hard to see that as a gift and i think that you know there's no judging here as i said your trauma is your trauma and your journey is your own but if you can at least neutralize the power of what you're going through and look specifically for how you can help others, even if it's just being kind and recognizing that everybody travels their own journey and drags their own crap behind them as they do it. But I know that that was an important piece for me. And then I now tell people all the time, the accident was the greatest gift that I was ever given. Exactly. I totally agree. So, Miriam, how has has your experience through the accident and the recovery, how has that really informed or shaped the work that you do? It's all of the work that I do. I, like I said, I learned these energy psychology methods and I started, I hope first I used them just to deal with my own pain and trauma. And then I started using them with clients. And then I started realizing, 
wow, I was working with a rape survivor. And I would work with an average client like that, an average of about two years maybe before they really came to a place of peace. And we worked on getting it, you know, getting them to a place of peace immediately. But it was it was really, it's incremental when it's a, a severe violation of personal space like that. And so instead of two years, I was able to take the same client and complete her process in less than a month, which blew me away. I think it blew all of us away that started using these things. And that was just kind of an average type of uh, a result that I would I was getting. And I wasn't sophisticated at using the processes then. I became much more sophisticated. I think all of us have that started out uh, in the, well, kind of the 90s was really the uh, renaissance and catch fire, the renaissance of some of the old techniques and catching fire of the new techniques. And we all went, holy cow, this stuff works so much better than what we were using. And most of us switched to using it. And then we ended up fighting the uh, the powers that be to keep using it. And that's kind of a battle that continues today somewhat, but there are a lot more, a uh, lot more recognition and, and acceptance today. But those went into informing my entire body of work. I created the Certified Energy Coach Program. I retrained as a coach in 2000. Then I created the Certified Energy Coach Program. I taught that at the Energy Coach Institute for nine years, I retired it in its 10th year. And today I've, I wrote a a book, several books, um, but my last book is Everyday Bliss for Busy Women, where I highlighted three of the energy therapy techniques. I then was in process of developing my own technique to, that addressed why uh, all of the energy therapies have a point in time which they stop working for certain clients, certain issues, etc. So I was tasked by our humanitarian director of the uh, Association for Comprehensive Energy Psychology that I was on the board of at the, at the time to develop a technique that worked when the others didn't or was ad- any way to address the piece of why it doesn't work and also to do it invisibly. He said it has to be invisible. This is Dr. John Hartung. Um, it has to be invisible because some of the people I work with overseas, they're superstitious. They don't want to tap on themselves. And, you know, so it has to be invisible. So that's, that led to me developing the ethos method. And ethos stands for energy transformation and healing open source, meaning source code is freely available. You can use it, modify it, whatever. Um, it's, always, it'll, it's free and it always will be. And if you're interested in that, you can get it at ethosmethod.com, E-T-H-O-S. Um, but that's you know, the, the whole of my work and then the marketing piece that I brought in from being an industrial psychologist in uh, Silicon Valley corporate, that is what I'm bringing in to help women who are a- activists that are starting movements for social good. We're using both the energy piece to break down their own self-sabotage and the limitations that they bring in that keep them from, for instance, getting on video or speaking on stage or stating their you know, what the price of their services is with confidence, et cetera. And that together with the whole marketing piece of getting that movement out and marketed, that's, you know, it's all about where I came from. So it's all there. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, you can then look back and go, okay, I really did need to go through that. I really did need to 
learned those those lessons that at, at their most elemental level to be able to do this work that I'm doing. It's painful to to recognize that, but yeah, some big lesson had to happen through that experience. That's fantastic. So, Miriam, can you talk about the big lessons that you feel you've learned, whether personally or professionally, by going through the experience that you've you've gone through? Yeah, one huge one. And I'm seeing this being played out around me right now. I live in uh, Palo Alto, California, which is home of Google, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And there is immense entitlement here amongst the young, amongst some of the older folks too. I'm uh, realizing, just looking back, I was super entitled. In a, I was very middle class and I wasn't rich growing up. Super entitled though. And it really helped me get over myself. Get over myself. And the, the, when you're lying in a bed and nobody's coming to your back and call, you really have got to get over yourself. It also empowered me to understand that I can heal anything I've got and that I have all the resources that I will ever need to solve any problem I will ever have, period, end of sentence. That's, and that is one of the huge things. There's another one. This, that's a, actually a presupposition from neurolinguistic programming, which um, I use in a lot of my, to construct a lot of my processes, healing processes. There's another one. There is no failure, only feedback. I love that one, and that was a huge, huge lesson to me. I would go, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. You know, my therapist of the time would go, actually, no, you just discovered another way not to do it right. Now you have this huge database that, and he told me the the, uh, story of of Edison discovering the light bulb. He tried a thousand different iterations before he actually hit on the light bulb. But we only remember that one, right? Right. (laughs) The world remembers him for that. And that I can develop processes that help people transform instantaneously. And that's a talent and a skill I have. I didn't even know before this. And there's so many more, but in the interest of time, I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, And again, it can be so hard to recognize that, there are these lessons, but there are they are so powerful when you're able to focus on, okay, this is what happened. What can I make out of it that's positive, and how can I take what I've got and get back to, to where I was and beyond? So that's so fantastic that you've been able oh, to create this tremendously profitable practice. I want to say one more thing, and that's even more important than any of the rest, is that I learned to actually genuinely love myself. And that was huge because I didn't. I hated myself. I thought really badly of myself most of my life. And that's most of us in Western society. We're conditioned to be down on ourselves and to always be taking ourselves to task and always be seeing our bad points and faults. And the, when moving my pinky toe was like, you know, if I can get this guy to move, it's a good day. You know, that really taught me to individually love each part of my body and in and of that, love my entire self. You know, that's an ongoing thing because we keep getting messages that batter that down all the time. But just getting that to a core level was huge and I think it was worth the whole accident if nothing else happened. 
Yeah, I would agree, I would agree with you. That is a lifelong struggle for many people, especially women, because whether we've lived through an abusive experience, we've worked for abusive bosses who have beat us down, or we have been conditioned by society and the media that we are less than or not even good enough, um, I think that we continuously wage this battle to to discover that we are more than enough, and we always will be. Yes, that's that's awesome. Thanks so much for for sharing your story and and being so open and honest with me today. I know that this was powerful for everyone who watched it. Can you share how folks can get a hold of you and and learn more about the work that you do? Absolutely. Um, you can. You're very welcome to come to my website everywomanchanges.com and if you're a business person I want to invite you to come to everywomanchanges.com forward stroke B-I-Z-R-E-A-D biz read and I'd love to give you a business reading to help you bust your one big hairy thing that's keeping you from getting out there in your business the way that you want to and getting successful the way that you want to um, I'm also on Facebook. I'm at Maryam, M-A-R-Y-A-M, Webster, W-E-B-S-T-E-R. Come friend me. I'm very easy to get to know, and I love the help. And thank you so much, Winnie. This has been awesome and amazing. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy that we connected. And, and it, this is just an example of the power of social networking in general and the power of when you are your most honest and raw self, how you never know who is going to connect with what you shared and where that's, that's going to lead. So Miriam and I now have this great virtual friendship and, and who knows where it will take us. So, so thank you again so much, Miriam. I'm going to encourage you to, to connect with her and I will be sharing links on my website and the links to everything that she's mentioned will be included I have one there. more thing so, that my assistant yes. just popped me up, but you better say this. I'm do, running a year-long mastermind and it's completely free on Facebook. It's a group called the Changing, Changing Woman Cafe. So if you put Facebook group Changing Woman Cafe, you're welcome to join us there too. If friending is like too much, come join us in the group. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Jane. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, I hope you found that both inspiring and informative. I was blown away by Mary Ann's story, and it illustrates the power of what Napoleon Hill would call a burning desire combined with the faith Mary Ann had in herself. Please share this episode with your contacts and colleagues if they'll feel the same way and appreciate you thinking of them as I appreciate you for sharing it. The show notes with links to resources mentioned can be found at winnieanderson.com slash paralyzed. Be sure to subscribe so you receive new episodes in your inbox along with information, tips, and resources to help you break free from fear, self-doubt, and disempowering patterns so you can courageously position and pre-sell yourself as the unique expert solution provider you are and profit from your expertise while you make a difference in the world. Okay, your reflection exercise. I want you to tune into your thoughts and ongoing monologue you have in your head. What do you say to yourself? What do you tell yourself? Do you call yourself bad names? Do you truly believe you can create the success you want? And do you say things that reinforce that belief? Are you taking action in a way that's consistent with what you say you believe? 
Awareness of what's going on in your head and in your heart is the first step to changing and creating what you really do want. And your action step. It's to identify what you think is the worst thing that ever happened to you and ask what it would take for you to turn this into the best thing that ever happened to you. And look, I know that's hard. I've had some crappy stuff happen to me, but I know people who've had even worse stuff happen to them. Our creator built the world in balance. Every up has a down, every front has a back. If you experience something, it must have a positive that you just haven't found yet. Once you do find it, you'll start to move forward faster and easier. If you'd like to work to achieve your goals in a community of like-minded solo professionals and entrepreneurs, then visit jointheachievers.com to learn more about the community there and to sign up for the waiting list for advance notice of when the next group begins. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of The Courageous Entrepreneur. Remember, you're capable of so much more than you think you are.